Welcome back to the Batty Girls Book Club podcast channel. I'm Danielle. And I'm Stephanie. And we are two chatty baddies who love to talk about books and provide digestible plot overviews of our and hopefully your favorite books. We do strive to be spoiler-free as we work through each episode, and we'll have bonus episodes throughout this series where we talk theory spoilers in our favorite and not-so-favorite characters. Today, we are covering half of book two in the Akatar series, A Court of Mist and Fury. This book had way too much plot for us to try to fit it into an hour, so this episode will cover everything from the beginning of the book all the way to chapter 25. Okay, shameless plug that this was my favorite book of the series. So with that, we have a lot of exciting plot themes to cover. Let's get into it. To kick it off, the prologue gives us a glimpse into some of the repeated nightmares that Farah seems to be having since her return from Under the Mountain. And in the specific nightmare that Farah was having, she's with Amarantha, who's instructing her to kill a fae person who we haven't yet identified. So Farrah goes on to have a bit of an internal conversation until it's revealed to us that the fae that's kneeling in front of her waiting to be killed is herself. And she goes through with it and she plunges the ash dagger into her own heart. So hello, what a way to introduce a book. I feel like this is some heavy, heavy symbolism into like the old Farrah being dead and now paving way for the new Farrah to emerge. But she wakes up from this nightmare. She's feeling nauseous, so she runs to the bathroom. She yaks. At this point, it's been three months since she was under the mountain. So three months of herself being made immortal. She's still having a little bit of difficulty getting used to her face strength. So she's like when she's eating, she's bending the silverware because she's too strong. She's closing the door and the glass is shattering just because she's closing them too hard. This is, Danny, what you were making reference to in our last episode with Akatar is like breaking dawn vibes right yes absolutely it's that like new vampire strength that's what exactly what it's giving me in this yes other physical updates Farah is still sporting her new tattoo from her bargain with Reese that she made under the mountain with him but she hasn't actually heard from him since she was brought back from the spring court but she's not overly mad about it So after Farrah gets sick, she crawls back into bed with Tamlin and she's still pensive and left with the feeling of how she had done all of this for Tamlin and for Prithian to save both of them, but she herself feels broken. And so just coping with all of that. I feel like this is her once again showing, you know, she gave absolutely everything, her mortal soul to all of these people, to the love of her life, Tamlin. And now she's kind of sitting back like, okay. I'm, I'm reaping the consequences of that a little bit. For sure. So the next part of the book, we learn about how Tamlin is still overprotective, still not listening to Ferris' needs, still not letting her out of the house, basically. So Lucian and the sentries go hunting in hopes of killing some of Amarantha's beasts, like the Nagas. They found five yesterday. They were able to slip through the wards that were put up. And Lucian was a bit, he was a bit roughed around from them. But we don't really know exactly what happened. So Farrah tells Tamlin, hey, I want to help. I want to go to the village. I want to help rebuild. And Tamlin says, nope, there's no one to escort you. So basically, Farrah needs a babysitter. And Farrah's like, I don't need an escort. I'm a big girl. I'm high fay now. And I'm an independent woman. And I want to help my people. And Tamlin's like, mm, no, <laughs> I will not allow it. 
once again controlling her not listening to her he forbids her basically to go and reiterates that he is not able to do what he needs to do when he's worrying about her. I feel like he just dismisses the whole conversation. He tells her to paint instead. Like, okay, Tamlin. I, she has not been able to paint since Under the Mountain. And I think she explicitly says that since returning from Under the Mountain, painting, being able to express all the things she felt Under the Mountain, it's just too hard to put that into a painting right now. So she has not painted at all since she's come back from Under the Mountain. And I feel... As if Tamlin always thinks that he knows better than Farah about what yes. she needs. And that's obviously not the case. He doesn't know. Like, she's explicitly saying she wants to do something to help. And he's like, just go paint. Mm. Just go color. Yeah. Like, just, he's very, very, very dismissive of her. And also of what she can do. He's like, no, mm. like, you're, you know, basically, you're the lady of Spring Court. You write letters and throw parties. And Farah's like, I want to do more than that. But anyways, love is in the air. At least we think it is. We learned that Tamlin proposed to Fair two months ago, and now Fair is in the thick of wedding planning. It's two weeks away, folks. This is go time. And she's not really loving planning, as many people do not. But lucky for her, she's got a friend, Ianthi, to help. Ianthi is a childhood friend of Tamlin's, and she's also the high priestess of the spring court. We learn that priestesses there are different than what we might think of. There's no need for celibacy. They can marry and bear children. And let me tell you, Ianthi, she's not a celibate lady whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> she's taking this. She's running with it. She's unmarried and definitely makes it obvious that she is enjoying this single life. She loves the male company that the land has to offer her. Ianthi is not just a day of wedding planner, folks. She takes the reins from day one, and Fair's okay with that because she has enough going on. She's got nightmares, PTSD. She's trying to figure out what her life's going to be like as Faye, and she doesn't want to have to make all of these choices on her own. So Ianthi is there for her. She makes it crystal clear that every aspect of her and Tamlin's wedding sends a message to Prithian and the world beyond. But Farrah doesn't really care that much about it. She's like, I'll just show up. Tell me what I'm wearing. By the way, it's an ugly dress. Sorry. There is <laughs> nothing that I love more than Reese's commentary on Farrah's ugly dress. <laughs> yes, I love that so much. <laughs> I also love the part where, and this comes up again, so this is important. I love the part where Farrah... And Tamlin talk about, you know, what is she going to be called? I mentioned that, you know, she's the lady of the spring court. So Farrah's like, am I your wife? There's no mating bond yet. What's my name? Am I the high lady? And he's like, whoa, there's no high lady here, sis. Basically, he says, you're going to be the wifey. You're going to be the missus, if you will. You're going to plan the parties. You're going to do all the menial tasks that a high lord's wife should do she definitely challenges that as she continues going to the night court and hears more from Reese about like babe you should be questioning this yes yes you're, you're good you're better than this which I love I love when Farah fights back <laughs> that's my favorite so mm -hmm. we'll get to that mm -hmm. this Farah, not my favorite obviously she's got a lot going on so I'll give her that but she makes a lot of excuses for Tamlin and all I think is like red flag red flag like toxic relationship you do not have to be making excuses for him. He is a grown, old, old man. Which also, can we just chat about the age difference, too? Because I have thought of that okay, yes. many times in this book. Yes. What are we? How are we feeling about that? 
generally weird, <laughs> fictionally love. Right. We love it. <laughs> How, like, he's hundreds of years old. I love a morally gray 500-year-old yeah. man. <laughs> we love a 500-year age gap. I'm here. This same age wouldn't really work out. They, would, they wouldn't be alive. I think even in our society, like 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, it's like, whoa. Oh, yeah. But they're like, oh, she's 19. Cute. <laughs> so our guy Tamlin makes it clear to Farah that females are not treated the same in Perithian. Not a huge shocker here. He doesn't explicitly say it, but he says it. Everything he's telling her is that I'm going to have more authority than you. I'm going to have more respect than you. And you're my second or third even. Yeah, I think Tamlin is just, he's a traditional guy. And he is a guy who just, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And this has, I shouldn't say clearly worked, but this is what he's deems has worked for the spring court for many generations. Yes. So he's just rolling with whatever has worked. And um, I think Farrah might be the first person to actually challenge him on it. Which I love. Like, question that. Please question that. Anybody out there, question yeah. when somebody says, well, this is how we've always done it. And he actually says that at some part in this book. He's like, well, that's just how we've always done it here. Okay, yeah. well, it doesn't mean that's the best way, Tamlin. The times are changing. <laughs> yes. Because the next day, we think that Tamlin might feel a little guilty because Lucian ends up taking Farrah to a nearby village, right? Farrah has been begging time and time again, please just let me do something. And now Tamlin's like, okay, Lucian, you're going to take our girl Farrah to the village. So Lucian feels bad for how Farrah's being treated. Like she's this fragile piece of glass. But this is where he starts to explain, like Tamlin is literally just terrified of anything happening to you. And Tamlin's the high lord and he has to respect his orders that's just again how the spring court operates no one challenges tamlin's authority i kind of feel for lucian and i feel like my liking for him grows a little bit where i want him to stand up to tamlin of course and be like you know look at farah she's miserable let her out of the house but at the same time i do understand that he's kind of in this weird pickle between his best friend, his high lord, and his job is to listen to everything Tamlin sure. says and obey. And now he sees Farah, and they're obviously growing in a friendship, and he respects her. And I think he's struggling. I think ethically, like he's having, he's struggling a bit too. Tamlin, I think, still has a little bit of fear about that maybe Farah, you know, could have a crush on Lucian. Mm. I think uh, in the first book, when Lucian was kind of flirting with her and he shut it down. I, I wish she did lingers. have a crush on Lucian. <laughs> we would have saved us a lot of trouble, Farah. I mean, Prithian wouldn't have gotten saved, but besides that, you would have saved us a lot of trouble. <laughs> you can tell our oh, feelings wait. about Tamlin are changing a bit in this book. <laughs> yeah, we, we're coming in hot this book. Coming in hot for Tam Tam. Uh, <laughs> so this is where... When Lucian and Farah ends up going to this village, Lucian tells Farah about this tithe that is upcoming. This is the first tithe that has been held since the curse was broken. It's run two times a year around the winter and the summer solstice. And each member of the spring court, high fae or lesser fae, they must pay a tithe in exchange for protection. And so as Tamlin's wife, Farah is expected to sit right next to Tamlin to help collect the funds. And Farah is the one who's expected to cast judgment on those who don't pay. Do they not see that maybe this is probably not the best gig for her as she's somebody who came from 
poverty? Like, are we not seeing that this might be really challenging for her? Yeah, and it, it does prove to be challenging when the tithe actually comes up, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, when Lucian and Fair arrive at the village, Fair is so excited to finally be able to put some hands-on help and everyone at the village is basically stunned and staring at them like fair is a celebrity and i think this is the first time but i'm not positive where fair is referred to as Farah Cursebreaker, which is a compliment and She's we famous. love that name but she is shocked to find out that her new celeb status means that no one wants her help they mm-hmm. they're just saying the debt is paid we don't want your help you've done enough for us you've done enough for prithian please just go home course that's a little bit disappointing for Farah because she has been begging please not only let me out of the house but how can I help now when they return back to the manor and it's a few days later the guests have started arriving for the wedding that fair is definitely feeling a little bit dreadful for she doesn't seem to be a fan of these bigger crowds parties especially when the attention is all on her understandable she just had people staring at her while she's in her worst like time of her life while she's having the worst time of her life being chased by a worm in the mud getting beat up basically realizing that she doesn't know how to read almost killing her friend because of that <laughs> getting when you killed. put it like that <laughs> yeah she had a whole she had a whole audience watching her die in what world would she want the same audience coming to watch her walk down the aisle and have all this attention on her once again only like a couple months later mind you yeah, well, Ianthe missed the memo and she planned did. a very <laughs> and planned a very grand party for Farah. <laughs> They're getting ready. Farah's having maybe not cold feet, but she she's not feeling so hot the night before the wedding. She's woken up. She's having another nightmare. Of course, it's about Amarantha. Nothing new. She wakes up sick to her stomach again, and she notices that Tamlin just like he never really seems to wake up to this, or is he just pretending to be asleep? We don't know. He's pretending. He's high fay. He's got the ears of high fay. There is no world that he does not know that she's throwing up. Either he just has a weak constitution, which I doubt because he can shred people in his beastie form, no problem. I think he's just a, you know, not a great partner. I think this is a huge red flag. Maybe he's just in his own feels and he has his own traumas and maybe he doesn't want to acknowledge that she's going Mm -hmm. through it too and she's miserable and maybe she's not the happiest with him right now. And so maybe that's his way of just like, I'm going to ignore the problem and it'll go away. Sure. She'll figure it out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If we don't put energy towards this, maybe it'll just let's let her purge it out. Literally. <laughs> Literally. All right. Dun, 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 dun. It's wedding day. And Farah hates her dress, as we know. The house is ready with flowers and chairs. As Farah is getting ready to walk down the aisle, she notices red petals all over the aisle. And all of a sudden, she starts having a panic attack. She It makes her think of the blood that she saw under the mountain. Definitely having some PTSD symptoms here. We need to talk about how Ferris specifically asked for no red anything, especially no red flowers, because Ianth asked her what color flowers that she would like, and she said like anything but red, or however yes. she phrased it, just like no red. Ianth is giving fake friend vibes, like mean girl vibes. She is 100%. From the start, she was giving me those vibes. She gave her an ugly dress, probably because she wants to be the best looking one there. And she, oh, I feel like she also addresses Tamlin a lot. 
and not Farah. And then the rat, come on, one thing she asked, please don't have red flowers. And what did she do? The red flowers are there. So Farah starts panicking and stops halfway down the aisle. Her internal monologue is telling her to do everything but move forward towards Tamlin, who she's supposed to be marrying. She literally could not make it the last few steps. She's begging. Like, her internal monologue is screaming, like, please, somebody get me out of this. Please help. Cauldron, save me. Whatever you want to say. And guess who shows up? Our guy, Reese, to save the day. And what does Reese say when he shows up? Stephanie, your favorite, one of your favorite lines. I can't even try to say it in his voice, but this is our favorite hello, Farrah, darling quote from Reese. We love it. Hello, Reese. Thanks for showing up. Your timing's impeccable. Hello, Reese, darling. (laughs) So three months in, the day of their wedding, Reese decides, I'm going to call in that bargain. He's like, hey, I gave you three months of freedom. Don't look so sad. Also, sorry, Tamlin, that I ruined your wedding day. Farrah clearly wasn't that into it. And, you know, let's talk about a runway bride here <laughs> because she actually has to run away with Reese. I feel like this is also the most Reese move that Reese could possibly make yeah. <laughs> aside from all of that. He's like, is this inconvenient I, for you? Cause this works great for me. <laughs> so I'm going to go ahead and show up. <laughs> so Reese winnows her to the night court. And the first thing Farrah notices is the smell of Jasmine and the sea and the stars and the snow capped mountains. And she's like, hold up. This doesn't seem like the night court. Everybody's been talking about like, this is, kind of nice this is kind of peaceful so reese winnows farah to his private home in the night court and he's like you're welcome by the way for saving you when you asked and she's like i literally didn't ask for your help and he's kind of like babe you look at your hands like you do you you do remember that (laughs) you did i can see everything i can hear everything you are literally begging in your head for help loud and clear so whatever they get into their back and forth and she heads to sleep at his residence He assures her, you're safe here. No one's going to hurt you. She can move around as she wants. She's not a prisoner in his house. What a novel idea. He should probably teach Tamlin that one. What a concept. What a a (laughs) concept. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So she does just that. She goes to sleep. She does wake up safe. And breakfast time the next day, she's woken up by the two handmaidens who had helped her under the mountain, Nuala and Caridwin. So Farah joins Reese for breakfast. She definitely still hates him, but she's kind of making a little bit of small talk with him. Like we were saying before, she's still adjusting to her new body. So she's eating her fork bends like crazy. And this forces Reese to ask, like, are you curious if you've gotten any other powers from the High Lords? And Farah just kind of dismisses the conversation, like, don't know, don't care, don't want to hear about it. And I actually wonder if... At this point, if she is curious about it, but because of all of the um, negativity that Tamlin's been drawing to it, if she's kind of just shut it down, like, yeah, forget like it. maybe I, she's I don't want to know or scared of it. Like, ooh. <laughs> also, this girl can't control her fork. Like, get her something else. <laughs> she's just trying to eat. Let her eat with her hands or something. We also learn about how the bond works between Farah and Reese. It's basically a bridge between their minds and either end is it's almost like a door into their minds and so reese is able to do that with anyone's mind unless they have mastered the art of shielding 
So Reese tells her that she can train to put those shields up so that even someone like Reese is not able to get into her mind. And Farrah's like, what do you even want to do with me? Like, why are you telling me all of this? I don't care. Why am I here? And he's like, the only thing I want from you this week is to learn how to read and to train you in shielding. This was so interesting to me because it's such a juxtaposition of what we assume Reese to be. And why (laughs) like what at this point we have no idea what his motives are I think that's nice like teaching her how to read he saw her under the mountain struggling so that's very thoughtful of you and something she could actually use in day-to-day life um but yeah why Reese why they've got a lot of questions for each other and Farah asked how long this bargain is going on for that's a great question once again Farah being curious She says towards the end of Under the Mountain, she thought that he was different. And by that meaning, you know, different than what everybody says he is. She realizes that Under the Mountain, he helped her a lot more than hurt her, despite what everybody said about this High Lord of the Night Corps. But now that he's keeping her and like forcing this bargain on her, she ain't sure. She's like, maybe, maybe they're right. Maybe he is kind of mean. But he tells her, I'm not the enemy. Like, clearly, I'm letting you, you know stay in my place you're safe you can explore you're learning things so I have mixed feelings I mean he is once again a man is taking Farah away from where she wants to be and forcing her to be somewhere else so I very much can understand why she has mixed feelings about this or why she's concerned but Reese is frustrated with her questioning his motives, questioning if he's a good guy. And he's like, how can you not see that for Tamlin, you're his reward. You're wrapped up. You're a little present on his wedding day. And I don't see you like that. So I think this gives us a glimpse of Reese sees her more for who she is than Tamlin does. Like Reese sees that she needs to be free sees that she has these powers he wants to help her with them and Tamlin wants to keep her on lockdown is this when Farah threw her shoe at Reese (laughs) because if so icon (laughs) icon (laughs) so after this back and forth Farah's PO'd Reese's PO'd and Farah's like I'm ready to go home and Reese just tells her girl keep practicing your alphabet and walks away so once the anger passes a bit later on Reese takes Farah up to a tower and shows her a map of their world every court in their land is marked along with cities mountains the whole nine but the night court is unmarked he asks her what she sees and she says I see a world divided in two. He asks her if she thinks it should remain that way, saying that there's a war coming that would break the wall, separating the fairy realm from the mortal lands. Yes, and we heard little sprinkles of this in book one. Something's brewing. We're not sure what, but it's brewing. So Farrah begs Reese not to invade the mortal lands. She's looking at this map thinking, oh, he's definitely going to be on that side of the war. Like, he's going to invade the mortal lands hurt my family. He's the bad boy. And he tells her, girl, that was never my plan. (laughs) She really is seeing the worst in him (laughs) at this point. But it seems to be the plan of some others in Prithian. So her worry is valid. Farah wonders why Tamlin didn't tell her any of this. I don't wonder that Farah, based on everything we know. (laughs) I'm not wondering that. But Farah is. And Reese tells her the King of Hybern has been planning his campaign to reclaim the mortal lands for over a hundred years. So yes, that's 
well longer than Farrah's been alive. And he says Amarantha was just an experiment to see how easily a territory might fall. And fall it did for 50 years. Reese says that Highburn will aim to take out Prithian first and then invade and conquer the mortal lands, a.k.a. where Farrah's family still lives, and that their people are the only people who can intercept. So Farrah's asking, you know, when when's this going down? Is this soon? Is this something we have to worry about? We don't know much. We just know something's coming. Farrah asks Reese if he fought in the first war, and he says that he did. He was stationed in the south where the fighting was the worst, and he has absolutely no interest in seeing slaughter again. Okay, so why is Reese telling her all of this? We know Tamlin would never. We think it's because she's close to Tamlin and wants to know if Tamlin will fight with the Night Corps. Also, Farrah has a skill set that he needs. She caught a cereal. He's failed to catch two, so she's already one-upped him more than once. <laughs> and then there's also a matter of these other powers. She has strength. She has speed. She has the powers of the seven High Lords. That's huge. I don't think there's anyone else that we know of now. That has all of the powers combined into one immortal being. That's a big deal. Yeah, I also think this is interesting because Farah is deaf intended by Tamlin to play a little spy game to the Night Court when she spends her time there. So I think Reese was being really strategic in sharing this information, knowing that Farah probably was doing just that and that she was going to feed all this information back to Tamlin. I also loved the part of this conversation where once again we're talking about high lords and high ladies and Farrah brings up you know well what if what if you could be a high lady and he tells her Reese tells her you can be a high lady and we're all looking at him like what Tamlin just said absolutely not there's no high ladies and Reese is clearly a girl's girl himself. So the next day when Farrah wakes up, she immediately asks to be taken back to her home in the spring court. And Reese asks her if she's ready to face the consequences of her departure, AKA seeing Tamlin when Reese is the one who technically jacked her from her own wedding. But Farrah's like, it's none of your business, but it kind of hits her that she does have to face the fact that she not necessarily her fault, but left Tamlin at the altar. I think it was bad enough she left him on red when he said, yeah. I love you in the first book, but then she left him at the altar. Even though Reese technically took her away, everyone saw her reaction walking down the aisle and saw her hesitation. Like even Tamlin, I think, was like, are you okay? What's wrong? So he knew, I think just by looking at her, everyone knew this girl's not getting married today. Whether Reese showed up or not, she was not budging. So I love that Reese brings this up. Like, oh, by the way, you have to go back to the man that you didn't want to marry. Clearly, clear as day, you did not want to marry. I'm also totally throwing some blame on Ianthe for the stupid red flowers. <laughs> if it, but, I mean, if it wasn't for the red flowers, you know. True, what else The whole rest of the on? story, who knows what would have happened next. <laughs> Uh, well, Reese does bring Farrah back to the spring court, and he's like, bye, girly pop. See you next time. When Farrah finds Tamlin and Lucian again, Tamlin checks her over to make sure first that she isn't hurt, and he's, like, inspecting her, like, what you get done at the airport. Like, he's checking her body. <laughs> it's a for pat down. Farrah is getting annoyed with all of this, and she's like, no one touched me. No one hurt me there. I'm literally fine. And Tamlin said, well, Reese could have hurt you in other ways that aren't physical. And Farrah reassures him that she's okay, and then she looks around to see if the study is trashed, and she confirms it's not just the study that he trashed. He trashed half of the house. 
there's that temper we talked about. Red flag once again. Also, a red flag that, okay, I think it was sweet that he checked her over, you know, TSA pat down, make sure she's good. But it seems like he is more interested at this point in figuring out what happened, not just what happened with her. Like, what did you talk about? What are the ins and outs? Like, he's trying to get information from her. And she's tired. She just spent a week in the, you know, enemy court. She's like, are you happy I'm home? Like, I came back. <laughs> nice, nice to, to see, see you, too. Yeah. <laughs> Love you. Mean Miss, it. <laughs> missed you. <laughs> Miss you. Mean it. <laughs> yeah. And, like, let's also talk about what happened at the altar as opposed yeah, to. Yeah, we got to chat. <laughs> we need to catch up. <laughs> But eventually, Farrah does give Tamlin some of her intel that she collected from the Night Court. And, I mean, she spills everything. She talks about the maps that she saw, the figures on the maps, Highburn's plans, and including the fact that Reese thinks that Farrah might have powers of the High Lords. Now, I don't know if Tamlin suspected this, but Lucian did say that if it's true that Farrah would be a target amongst the High Lords. Tamlin still, not shockingly, says he doesn't want her to train, doesn't want her to learn how to use her powers, and that he can protect her because if she does start to train, then it's going to draw too much attention on her, being negative attention. And this kind of ends up being Tamlin's downfall because he had this girl wrapped around his finger until he started pulling stuff like this. This is the point. If I, if I wasn't already there the first time I read this, I know by this point I was not a fan of Tamlin he is taking her independence away he is very like almost patronizing he clearly knows he saw the fork bend okay we've all seen the fork bend we know she's extra strong he's really stunting her growth like there is so much she has to learn about being a fae and he could be helping guide her and really like harbor these new strengths of hers and really like mold them and instead he's like let's just pretend once again they don't exist just like you throwing up in the morning every morning let's pretend it doesn't exist and everything will be fine as we know when you know you just push things under the rug sweep it under the rug everything will be okay I'm sure this won't backfire I'm sure of it um well it does (laughs) (laughs) All right, so it's a week later now. Farrah's still at the spring court. It's time for the tithe. We're all my Outlander girls and boys because this very much reminded me of the scenes in Outlander where they do something very similar and they collect money from all the ordinances around. Yada, yada, I won't get into that rabbit hole because I love Outlander so much, but I had to shout out. That is what I visualized here. So Pharaoh watches the emissaries come to give their tithe. Lucian keeps track of who's paid and what's on the sidelines. He's kind of, you know, the bridesmaid at the bridal shower. <laughs> it's cute. He's writing down who to send thank you notes to and who to send, <laughs> like, the death warrants to. <laughs> and then a gray-skinned, black-eyed fae woman approaches, wearing no clothes, saying she comes on behalf of the water wraiths. She pleads with Tamlin, saying there is no fish left in the lake. She has absolutely nothing to give. And Tamlin does not give an F. He says, pay up, sis, and I give you three days to come up with the funds or else. (laughs) Farrah asks, why do we even need this money? Like, clearly we have more than we need. And Tamlin says he can't make exceptions for everyone. Otherwise, everyone else will expect the same treatment. This is when he says... 
this is the way it is. It's always been this way. This is how my father's done it. And this is how his son will do it. It makes me shudder. (laughs) Yeah, literally, I'm shuddering at that. (laughs) This explains so much about him, though, like his character, his morals, his values. So Farah, being the kind, empathetic person she is and understanding what it's like to have absolutely nothing, she goes after the wraith and gives her jewelry to sell in order to pay the tithe and also to buy food for her and her family. Tamlin is not happy about this, as we could have expected, and Farah claps back saying, you have no idea what it was like for me and my sisters. And she's looking at Tamlin, I think, with a little bit of a different lens now. So they have it out. They're both mad at each other. Once again, they don't understand each other, and they're not communicating, as we know. They love to do. So Tamlin comes into the room, apologizes to Farah after the tithe, and gives her a gift. It's in this scene that everything kind of blows up in Tamlin's face. This is when Farah tells him she cannot live with the suffocation of having guards day and night. And then he asks if she wants to marry him at all. And she says she does, but she is drowning. Tamlin just gets angry. (laughs) He gets absolutely so angry that she feels this way, that he blasts his power in the room, breaks the windows, breaks the furniture. Things are flying around. The gift he gave her, It's gone. And a side note, they have not spoken about when they will hold this ceremony yet. Once again, lack of communication. So somehow Farah is not hurt when this whole room basically explodes around her because it's as if someone shields her like a bubble around her, if you will. And then she realizes she's shielding herself. You go, girl. So after this whole situation, Tamlin once again feels really bad, apologizes to Farah, and she convinces herself she's got to give it a try. He's doing his best. She can forgive him. Oh, cringe, cringe, cringe. And then one particular morning, she wakes up and hears Tamlin arguing with Reese. Reese spots Farah and questions if she's being fed enough. He looks her up and down and is like, oh my goodness, this girl has skin and bones. And so now, It's time for Farrah to go back to the night court. Once again, Reese with wonderful, impeccable timing. Farrah doesn't have to deal with a situation that just happened with her and Tamlin. And she winnows off with Reese to the night court. I think this is the first time in the story that Farrah notes that going back to the night court brings her this like sense of peace. It's a serene place and it's better than being trapped at the spring court. So she's kind of digging it. She's not feeling as trapped with this bargain anymore. I think she's feeling a little bit relieved by it. And Reese is still trying to get Farah to work with him. He wants an ally. He sees her strengths. He wants to help hone that power within her and he wants her to work with the night court. Yeah, I feel like it's interesting that Ferris already made this observation between this her association with the Spring Court and the Night Court and like Reese, he he keeps trying to get Farah to work with him using the power she has from the the High Lords, but I feel like they're taking their relationship or bargainship, whatever you want to call it, they're taking it really slow because Ferris, she's not quite down yet, but we start to see little bits and pieces on how she's getting a favorable view of the night court. I love that bargainship, first of all. And second of all, I think it speaks volumes that she's feeling peace, serenity. She's feeling 
comforted at the night court this place that is supposed to be so awful like the worst court in all of Prithian versus in the spring court where she has more friends she has Tamlin she's that's the place where you think she would most want to be and I think that speaks volumes to how trapped she's feeling there so during this week at the night court, Farah focuses on her reading and writing and eating because as we know, she wasn't she wasn't looking so good. She wasn't looking so healthy. I think they even mentioned like her ribs are showing and like her cheekbones and she at one point looks in the mirror and is like, "Whoa. She's got black under her eyes." Like, "Girl, was not doing well in the spring court and the fact that nobody said anything and nobody was trying to help her in the spring court makes me really sad but clearly she was not mentally or physically doing well there so she spends her time in the night court doing all of these things to kind of get herself like a little self-care time if you will a week goes by and we're back at the spring court tamlin and lucian are heading out to check out some activity on the western sea border the one that's closest to highburn and farah once again trying to get out of the house asked to go with them once again Tamlin says no and Farah reminds him of the facts she lays it out for him she says there will always be a threat always be a reason to keep her locked in here and that he promised to do better for her and tells him that she needs to get the heck out of this manor or she's gonna lose it and he's like okay I can help you with that why don't you just go ride some ponies around the manor (laughs) and she's about to lose it like he is not get like what are you not understanding Tamlin about what she's saying she wants to do something purposeful you know not just yeah yeah do this with your time no she's trying to find purpose in this new life and especially if you think about it she is seeing her life as so much longer than she's ever imagined it could be so now she's sitting here at 19 years old maybe you know 20 19 years old and she's picturing the rest of her immortality doing this like this riding ponies around Tamlin's manor that will never be hers because you know that's the way it's always been so Farah tells Tamlin that she is going whether he likes it or not and he says no you ain't (laughs) and she tries to go after him but then he's got the nerve to put up a shield around the entire manor so she can't leave. This was gut-wrenching. This was like the straw that broke the camel's back, truly. Nail in the coffin. Nail in the coffin. We've been saying that she's felt trapped this whole time, but physically, you know, not really. No, no, no. She's trapped, and she's feeling it. And Lucian is still at the manor, and he tells her that he's shielded the entire house so that Farrah can't leave. And once Farrah learns this, she begins to panic. She realizes Tamlin has truly locked her up. She's getting flashes of under the mountain when she was locked up. She's having a panic attack. Her powers are, like, emitting uncontrollably in this panic attack. And she gets wrapped in this rage and absolute total darkness to the point that no one can see her. Like, Alice is calling, like, Farrah, Farrah are you okay and she can like distantly hear it but nobody can get to her until she feels someone scoop her up and take her out of the manor and notices that it feels like a female body against her and at first she's like oh my goodness it's amarantha but then she realizes it's our girl more she's come to rescue her hey girly and alice oh i love alice alice at this point 
realizes what's happening, realizes that Farrah is unwell, and that more has come from the night court to take her away, and that Farrah's okay with it. And Alice says, take good care of her. Oh, I think, in my opinion, this was one really big turning point in the book. Absolutely. I think this was almost what needed. I wish it didn't happen this way. Like, I wish it could have either Farrah could have gotten out of it way sooner or Tamlin could have realized that he was really, like, hurting her every time he kept her away from what she needed or wanted to do and wasn't listening to her. But I think something like this had to happen for her to like snap out of it, out of this feeling of, Oh, I need to give him a chance. Oh, I need to make it work. Like she realizes this, this, this ain't working for her. All right. Well, hang on folks, because Farrah wakes up in the night court. And when she asks Reese, what happens, he tells her how she ends it up at the night court, but he also tells her since she's not here on bargain time, she technically isn't forced to go back to the spring court she can stay at the night court for as long as she wants so he doesn't have to bring her back but that is why more had to be the one to get fair there's some fairy type of legislation yeah. that he had to go through and more had to be the one to get her so i loved when more was like i did everything by the books like she had to physically like r- take farah from the spring court out of the spring court into the next bordering court before she could winnow her out. Otherwise Tamlin's court could like come and get the revenge on the night court and take her back. Like as property, it sounded like to me. Yes. Yep. That's exactly right. And so Reese instructs Farrah to just rest for a day or two, get yourself situated. He's got some work to do, but Farrah asks this girl, she's still, she's still trying to do some work. She says, Reese, can I please go with you? <laughs> because the thought of being stuck in the night court with everything that has happened, stuck there in solitude, the thought of it makes her go insane. And he says, you can go, but if you do, there's no turning back. You're not going to be allowed to speak to anyone, obviously referring to Tamlin. You're not going to be able to speak to anyone outside of this court about what you see. And so she does agree to go with him and she promises she'll keep it a secret, won't tell a soul. She wants to know where they're going and he tells her they're going to be going to Valeris, which is also called the City of Starlight. So Valeris has been kept a secret for millennia thanks to wards and spells that were placed on the city and Amarantha didn't know it existed, nor did any of the other courts. So Reese let Amarantha think that he was delighting in ruling this court of nightmares, but it's all a front. He only had enough power left to shield and hide one place, one city, and he chose Valeris. And Farrah thinks it's kind of a shame that other people in Prithian don't know about what he did to protect his people because, again, everything that Farrah has heard about Reese is only bad things, but Reese doesn't really care. He's like, as long as people I know and love are safe, I'm good. As they're moving about Valeris, Reese tells Farah about his second home in the city, which is called the House of Wind. And so at this point, this is where we are introduced to the inner circle for the first time. Woohoo! So we have <laughs> we have more. More is third in command. We have Cassian, our army general. We have Azriel, the spy master. We have Amran, our second in command. And none of these people were under the mountain because Amarantha didn't know that they existed. 
I remember Reese saying that he like shot out some of his mental power right before his powers went away. Like when he was drinking the wine, realized that Amarantha was taking his powers. And one thing that he did was obviously shield the Valeris and take, you know, that memory from everybody's minds that could possibly be tortured there and that Amarantha could learn it from. But then he also sent a message to the inner circle saying like, hey guys, this is what's happening. I don't know when I'm going to see you again. Stay safe. Like, oh, like that pulled on my heartstrings. He's just such a loyal dude. When Reese became High Lord, the Night Court was split into categories of those who hated but tolerated Reese and those who currently reside beneath the mountain in Hewn City, the Court of Nightmares, a.k.a. the people that hate Reese the most. So there's still this like divide in the Night Court land where there's a place that exists that's very much the place that people think of when they think of the Night Court, and that is Hewn City. That is the Court of Nightmares. That is what all of these people have been warning Farrah about, where there are scary creatures and bad things happen, but the rest of the Night Court is totally fine. So just don't go to Hewn City by yourself. And that's also what Amarantha modeled under the mountain after. Yes, absolutely. Literal nightmares, court of nightmares. So Cassian offers to help teach Fair to fight, which makes sense since he is a big, tough fighting boy. And Farrah realizes how absolutely ridiculous it was that Tamlin wouldn't let her train. And I think everybody realizes that this is ridiculous at this point. We hear more about the war where the king of Hybern wants to resurrect Jurian, which he apparently can do now because the adder escaped with Jurian's eye that was connected to the ring on Amarantha's finger. Thanks, Amarantha. And thank your jeweler. And his little finger bone that she used to wear. And he took that to the king of Hybern. But he isn't sure how they can resurrect him with just this. So because of all this happening, the inner circle, they need some answers. They're curious of what's going on with Jurian. What does Highburn want? What can they do to help stop this war that's inevitably coming? And Amran Ever, the elder of the group, suggests that they go and talk to the bone carver, which we learn lives in the prison, and that he will probably only talk to Farah because she's an immortal with a human soul. And I guess he likes humans the best, and Farah agrees to go. So with that, Reese winnows himself and Farah to an island in the Western Isles, and they are going to the prison to see their pal, the bone carver. Now, the prison is inside of a mountain, and it was made before even the High Lords existed. It's home to the most foul, most dangerous criminals, creatures, everything you can imagine. So being that this prison is under a mountain, Farah is having a really hard time accepting that she's going to have to voluntarily bring herself into another mountain. So she backs out, unfortunately, and Reese doesn't ask any questions. He just takes her back to Valeris. And so Amran comes to visit Farah, and she gives her an amulet that she says she actually herself got out of the prison. And if Farah wears this when she goes, they can never keep her. So this is going to keep her safe, maybe provide Farrah with some comfort, knowing that should she decide to return to the prison to speak to the bone carver, she's going to be, she has lots of peace of mind wearing this. So now that Farrah has her amulet, she's down to go back to the prison. Reese is going with her, and this time he carries a sword with him. We find out that the bone carver appears different to every person. So Farrah is going to see him as one thing, and Reese will see him as another. So Reese opens the prison door, they go in, and the bone carver appears to Farah as a little boy with dark hair and blue eyes. 
So Reese, Reese gives the bone carver the bone, and their agreement is question for a question. So the bone Not just any bone, though. Not just any bone. It's the calf bone that made the final kill when Farrah killed the worm in the task under the mountain. So Farrah and the bone carver play the back and forth question for a question game. And then Farrah finally gets to ask what they really came for, which was if there was nothing but a little bit of a bone, could that person be resurrected and given a new body? And the bone carver says there's only one way, and that would be if their soul was preserved. He also explains that long before the High Fae, there was a cauldron, and that all magic was contained in it, and the world was born in it. It fell into the wrong hands and was used to do terrible things, but was stolen back. The cauldron couldn't be destroyed, so it was hidden, and that only the cauldron could reforge something that was dead. Okay, well, where is this cauldron? So the bone carver says that it was hidden beneath a frozen lake, but that it had vanished a long time ago. And he doesn't know where it was, but notes that three feet of the cauldron were cut off by someone who had tried to fracture some of its power. The feet of the cauldron were hidden in three different temples. So the bone carver does confirm that the king of Hybern has the cauldron, which is scary because we know- that's not great we know the king of hybern is planning some type of war so the fact that he has this tool is not good the bone carver also tells them that the king can do other things with the cauldron which includes shattering the wall also scary because we've heard that this is something that also might be happening and the we find out that the cauldron's power can be depleted so fair asks if there's a way to stop any of this from happening And the bone carver explains that when the cauldron was made, the last of the molten ore was used to forge a book called the Book of Breathings. Inside that book is a spell that's needed to negate the cauldron's power or control it completely. Now, the book was split into two pieces after the war, one piece to the Fae and one piece to the six mortal queens. All right, where are these pieces of this dang book? Yes, we find out that the High Lord of the Summer Court has one piece of the book. It's guarded and protected with spells that are specific to to the High Lord of... So we find out that the High Lord of the Summer Court has one piece of the book. It's guarded and it's protected with spells. And the spells needed to use the book are specific to the High Lord of the Summer Court. The mortal queens, the six of them, one of the six of them, have the other half, and they've used fairies to bind the book so that if it's ever stolen, it's going to melt into ore and it'll be lost. So Bone Carver tells her if she's able to reunite both parts of the book, she can nullify the powers of the cauldron. So thank you so much, Bone Carver. That's so incredibly helpful. <laughs> so helpful. So we are leaving the prison, we being Farrah and Reese, and me in my mind, because I wish I was with them. <laughs> 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 so uh, they leave the prison and return to Valeris and update the inner circle on what they have learned. And Reese thinks they will need to infiltrate Highburn to get the cauldron or to nullify it. Otherwise, they going to be in trouble. This cauldron is powerful. We do not want it in the wrong hands. So Reese thinks that Farah might be able to detect the book. The book is spelled to the individual High Lord's power, but since our girl Farah got a little piece of power from each of the seven of them, we think that she might be the key to getting this book from the Summer Court High Lord. Reese wants to test this theory as he is a theory guy. We love this. And wants her to try and find a valuable item of his that has been missing for a very long time. He takes her to the weaver 
just to see if she can identify the object in the weaver's trove. No big deal, right? So because the weaver is blind, her other senses are lethal. So she can hear really, really well. Reese can't grab the item himself because the weaver knows him, but also knows the High Lords are not allowed to interfere with her. Also interesting. They reach the weaver's cottage. Farah like sneaks her way inside quietly and realizes we have a hoarding situation here. <laughs> we are on Hoarders Anonymous. The weaver <laughs> loves to collect items. And this isn't going to be as easy as Farah thought. So she starts searching and finally she can feel the object. Not physically. I just mean like sense it because, you know, like attracts like. So she's feeling the for the object. She senses it. She finds that it's a ring of twisted strands of gold and silver flecked with pearl and set with a stone of deep blue. She grabs the ring. As she does, the weaver suddenly stops singing. Farrah tries to leave through the door, but it slams shut. The weaver turns towards her, and Farrah realizes that she's, like, weaving something together over there. She's got some strands of string. But wait, that ain't string, girl. That's hair. That is, like, human fay, whatever you want to call it. She is weaving together some hair. So Farrah, thinking fast on her feet, as she can usually do, throws a candle at the thread, which immediately begins to burst into flames, and she runs for it. She can't get out the door. There's no windows for her to run out of. So she runs to the fireplace. That makes sense. And she begins to climb up. As she's climbing up, she is struggling. She realizes how weak she is now. And then Farrah gets stuck in the fireplace and she begins to panic and she hears a voice telling her to stop and think stop and think be smart you can get through this you got this and fear remembers she has gifts now she's not just a regular old gal she's a fae and so she uses her strength to begin breaking bricks loose and she hurls one at the weaver's face she escapes to the roof and runs until she finds reese he grabs her and winners her back to the house of wind you could have been more helpful reese like, he's just standing out there, realizing all this is happening, hoping for the best. It's a test. And I I feel like the whole time, he had, like, a smirk on his face. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he, he, this is fun. I feel like he treated this almost as a teaching moment for Farrah to use the instincts True. that you have. And also, if you can't handle this, you definitely cannot handle finding the book of breathings. Yes. And you're stronger than you think. I love that. It, I do see that. It's a, it's kind of mean. <laughs> she's been through enough, but she's the one who says she wants to help. She needs to start using her powers. She's the one, the only one that we think can get this book of breathings besides the summer court high lord himself. Yeah. So with all of that, they've now, Farah has proven that she might be capable of finding this book of breathings. But before they can do that, our inner circle is going to head on over to the mortal world to Farah's family's estate. This is where she tells her sisters everything that happened under the mountain about Amarantha, the king of Highburn, the book, the mortal queen's everything. So Farrah is hoping that in sharing all this with her sisters that they'll agree to use their family estate as almost a middle ground where High Fae can come as well as the queens of the realm. And Nesta tells Farrah to buzz off, no surprise, <laughs> and that <laughs> and that doing this is going to cause the family to lose their standing in society if people find out. And also it's going to threaten Elaine's her upcoming wedding, which this is the first we hear about this, Elaine is due to marry in five months to a lord's son. This lord has spent his life hunting Faye. So that's not great. And Nesta's like, 
no Faye are going to be coming to my house. So Elaine talks a little bit of sense into Nesta and she says that Farrah did so much for us. Like we can do this one little thing for her and that basically the wedding won't even matter if they're all dead. So with that, Cassie and Asriel and Reese come in. They meet the sisters. Cassian, he kind of throws a little bit of shade towards Nesta for just sitting around while Farrah risked her life for their family. I love that. It like gives me big brother vibes. It's like very protective, especially when Farah really isn't anything to this inner circle right now. I mean, she's someone that's trying to help, but I feel like this was going out of the way, which I really appreciated. I also love when Ness is like, so uh, what happened to Tamlin? <laughs> when she shows up with this totally different high fey lord, she's like, uh, <laughs> which obviously Farah tells her like, yeah, he was keeping me trapped. He wasn't it. And she's like, okay, <laughs> she accepts that, but. That's funny. (laughs) So now that they're all acquainted, what is their big plan? They are going to draft up a letter to send to the mortal queens tomorrow in hopes that they can get a meeting with them. So the next day, Reese takes Farrah out to train her new high fey powers, but... Farrah can't really concentrate with Reese there, so she tells him to leave. She's getting a little distracted. She's writing magical notes back and forth to Reese when suddenly a hand grabs Farrah, it covers her mouth, and we find out who is this hand. It is the hand of the adder. So in the most cliffhanger way possible that is where we're going to cut out this episode that's going to be a wrap for part one of a court of mist and fury book number two of the akatar series and arguably but also not arguably the (laughs) best book in the series (laughs) our next episode which will come out on february 14th we'll be covering the rest of this amazing book and things will get wild and you will not want to miss it if you like what we have to say and want to hear more hit that follow button on apple Podcasts, spotify and subscribe Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Batty Girls Book Club. That's Batty with two T's, not D's, so that you never miss an episode. And if you want to help us reach viewers like you, please leave us a review. And remember to stay batty. Stay batty.